0: Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello there, my good friends. Good to see you today. Thank you for your time. There are few things more underappreciated than the mountain music that comes from the Appalachian Mountains. Except for we who live here, the ones who know the roots from where it came, most think of it as nothing more than dueling banjos on steroids. The truth is that the music of the mountains falls under two different categories. The one being bluegrass, which is officially classified as the earliest of American jazz. One only has to pick up one of these instruments and attempt to strike a single coherent note on it to realize that they're in for a lot of practice to figure this one out. Then there's the original country music, which stemmed from a recording that was made of several families back in the early 1900s in Bristol, Virginia. These recordings captured A.P., Sarah, Mother Maybell, and the Carter family, who were accredited as the first family of country music. The vocal harmonies emanating from these types of music are unheard of at the time. Those who live here in the mountains recognize the sound coming from a form of sacred harp singing. But for those outside the mountains, well, they were just completely blown away by it. There were two boys from the foothills of the Appalachians in Alabama who took the Sacred Harp sound to a whole other level and nearly melted the recording company's microphones doing it. Come on in, take your shoes off and set a spell and let me tell you about the time two Appalachian boys nearly melted the record company's equipment with their singing. And by golly, they did it all the hard way. Ira and Charlie Loudermilk were two of seven children, born to Colonel Monero and Georgianne Loudermilk. After World War I, the couple had moved from North Carolina to the Sand Mountain region of northern Alabama, where Ira and Charlie were born. Uh, Ira was born on April 21, 1924, and Charlie on July 7, 1927. In 1929, the family moved to Henniger at the Northeast end of the mountain in DeKalb County, where they raised cotton, sugar cane, and vegetables on 23 acres of land. Like most families in the area at the time, the milks grew up without electricity, gas-powered farm equipment, and any other modern convenience that we know today. Now, being that I'm from the Appalachian Mountains, I know exactly how this feels. Folks listen, listening to me might think that I'm complaining about it, but that's far from what I'm saying i know how it feels from experience i remember my grandfather living on his farm without any electricity or running water when we would go visit for a while to enjoy our taste of the farm life it seemed that everything slowed down it seemed like you really didn't miss any of that stuff the reason that you didn't miss any of that stuff was that you were busy doing so many different things that come time for sitting down in the evening and you know, by golly you was ready to sit down in the evening instead of watching tv you might go get your old guitar or banjo and do a little front porch picking before calling it a night my grandfather never had running water nor electricity and had no interest in getting it i guess you never miss what you never had from a young age the two boys were expected to work on the farm we all knew that was just the way it was in those days and and as as of today in some places in the appalachian mountains Working the cotton cane fields was long, hard work. Most days lasting 12 hours or more, but the boys still found time for messing around and doing what boys do. The father was tough on them, and when they stepped out of line, they received a whooping. Usually, Colonel would go pick a switch off a hickory tree and use that to administer the proper amount of discipline that he felt needed. Most of the time, Ira would get the worst end of it because his father felt like he, being the older boy of the two, should have known better than to lead Charlie astray in the first place. Charlie later said that Ira could talk him into about anything. One day, their father took all the kids out into the field and showed them a $5 bill. He told them that the one who picked the most cotton would get the money. Off went the whole lot of them, going out like there was no tomorrow. Charlie being the short feller was able to outpick all of them in one. Now this came back to bite him the next day as Colonel told him that uh, now he knows how much cotton they can pick every day and when properly motivated and he expected them to pick that much cotton every day or the next motivation would be coming from another source. Charlie later told the story of the time when the two of them raided a persimmon tree. Now persimmons are some of the sweetest plum type fruit that you can eat but you try to eat one before they're completely ripe they're one of the most horrible things to ever touch your tongue and to top it off there comes a bellyache you won't forget. Ira told Charlie that he couldn't stand to wait on those persimmons to ripen another day so they concocted a plan to raid the tree and strip off all the fruit and being too short to reach up the top of the tree to get the persimmons Ira ran back to the barn and grabbed an axe. He proceeded to cut a notch in the tree just deep enough so that Charlie could bend it over and get to the persimmons, which he completely stripped off the tree. Now, there are two reasons that this is, wasn't going to fly, and they both knew it. First off, the family used those persimmons to make preserves that would last until next season. Second, they didn't just take the persimmons, well, they killed the tree. None of this settled in at first as they pushed a tree back up and shoved a two by six board against it to hold it up no it didn't settle in until after they'd ate all the persimmons that they'd hauled back to the barn in the wheelbarrow it was a few days later after their stomachs had calmed down that they thought that they just may have got by with it and they're in the clear uh, that dear old dad was maybe up in the field that day and saw a board leaning against the tree He kicked the board from under the tree, and the old dried-up thing fell over on him, knocking him down, and leaving a nice cut on his forehead. He didn't find that a bit funny, but Ira and Charlie had just got home from working in the cotton fields when Papa rolled up. They watched as he grabbed the board out of the back of the wagon and headed for the house, so they started preparing themselves for the hickory switch. But Colonel walked in and began beating Ira with the board, and... Propped up, that was propped up against a tree. In fact, he was so intent on beating Ira that he forgot Charlie had anything to do with it. Their mother finally pulled him off of Ira, who was left unconscious. Their mom sent for a doctor who found that Ira had suffered a concussion. He was literally unconscious for a whole 24 hours. Charlie said that he thought that the reason his father was so hard on him, as far as work was concerned, was that he had been made to work in his father's field, who was a mean alcoholic. The work Colonel was expected to do was make charcoal for 12 hours a day for his entire childhood. Now, I don't know how many folks know how that works, but the best description that I can give you on that is that you practically stand directly in a fire pit watching the burning wood until it hits a certain stage. Then you scoop it up out of the fire and let it cool so it could be used to charcoal later. So there's a good chance that Colonel Loudermilk thought that Ira and Charlie had it pretty easy. But life wasn't all beatings and work. Both parents introduced Ira and Charlie to music throughout their childhood. Their father played banjo and fiddle and their mother sang traditional songs around the house. Charlie remembered helping her around the house before he and Ira were old enough to work in the fields and neither of them ever forgot those songs. But their main inspiration came from their mother's participation in the sacred harp style of church singing. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we in the Appalachians are no stranger to singer, uh, sacred harp singing. For me to attempt to explain the sacred harp style of singing on a podcast would be an exercise in futility. Also, trying to play sacred harp music wouldn't come close to doing it any justice, but as my brother Appalachian David McKinney said to me, he, you, if you like what it is and know what it is, there's a good example of it on the movie Lawless. You can look at the scene on YouTube just look up Lawless on YouTube Sacred Harp singing that's a pretty decent example of what it is the brothers became familiar with the songs of Uncle Dave Macon Roy Acuff the Delmar brothers and the Blue Sky Boys by listening to their father's records and an old hand crank Victrola yes my grandpa had one of those too as poppy and scratchy as the sound was there was nothing like hearing a record played on one of those things the boys would also go over to neighbor's house to listen to the Grand old opera on Saturday nights after supper, There, where they heard many of their major country music acts of the 1930s. Their favorite was, of course, Roy Acuff. Now, as young boys, they began to lead some of the sacred harp singing in church where Ira heard a young girl singing. Her form of harmony singing was a fluctuation on the high notes that would later become his trademark. Since there was no TV and the milks didn't have a radio, much less a place to plug one in if they did, once their work was completed at home, the boys began to sing in the evenings to pass the time. Their dad, seeing that they were getting pretty good at their singing, would ask the boys to sing for guests when they came by the Milk home. Now, for some reason, leading the Sacred Harp singing didn't bother the boys at all, but singing for guests, well, that scared the heck out of them. They would agree to sing for the folks, but would hide under the bed where they couldn't be seen at all when they'd done it. That finally would pass as they became more comfortable in their sound. Their father, seeing that the boys were really doing great at this music thing, bought them the first instruments. Ira got a mandolin and Charlie a guitar. Now, being poor and yet spending money on instruments that were handmade back then tells me that their father must have really been impressed with their sound. And if that wasn't enough to convince anybody that he was, then he what he did next proved it. He started taking the boys out and letting them set up on a street corner and play for tips. As the boys gained more confidence in their performing abilities, they started kicking around the idea of making a career out of picking and singing especially after going to a Roy Acuff show that they were too poor to buy tickets for. They were standing outside and listening to him sing. They thought that they could do this. They could do his songs better than he could, they thought. The boys entered a radio contest where the grand prize was a 15-minute radio show at 4.30 in the morning in Knoxville Radio Station. They performed an old song that they'd learned from their mother called Knoxville Girl and literally blew, the way, blew away the crowd they won the contest hands down. Now they needed to move to Knoxville to be able to perform a daily 4.30 a.m. show. Being that Charlie was still a young feller, Ira convinced their father to allow Charlie to move to Knoxville with him. They did the show and managed to pick up shows around Knoxville as a result, but the shows paid so poorly that they literally offered to clean tables during the breaks to make a little extra money. This lasted until 1945. Even though the boys had built a good following, Charlie was about to be drafted, and he went ahead and enlisted into the Army Air Corps near the end of World War II. And Ira, who had himself been drafted earlier but was injured in training, started working a series of odd jobs and performing with Charlie Monroe's band. Ira had been offered a spot by Bill Monroe as a bluegrass boy, but preferred to working with Bill's brother, Charlie. As we know in the mountains, Bill was a bit bullheaded when it came to his sound and not many could could, or wanted to try to cut it with him. Now, that don't make Bill a bad guy, but it just makes him a great musician who knew where he wanted his sound to go. When Charlie was discharged in 1946, Ivor promptly quit Mr. Monroe's band and the boys again went on performing in another radio station with a gospel format. The boys ended up making so little at the station that when they were offered $20 a week to go to a Memphis radio station and to do a show, they jumped all over it. Now, they didn't know it, but the man who booked them at the radio show, Smiling Eddie Hall, had promised the radio station that he would produce a show for them that would include a vocal duo, which he hadn't had any idea who they were going to be at the time. Nonetheless, they went about doing the show... Now, this time, the boys had written about 30 songs, which they couldn't get any publishing company to even look at. That's when Smiley and Eddie found out about the songs. He told them that he would take them over to the Acuff Rose, Acuff Rose Publishing Company for them. Now, Acuff Rose was a top song publishing company in the world at the time. Fred Rose, who wrote Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain, among other hits, ran the publishing company, and he loved all the boys' songs. Now, there was just one small hiccup in the whole deal. Smilin' Eddie had told Fred Rose that he had written the songs along with the boys. So, for the rest of his life, he retained partial royalties on the songs every time one was recorded or played. Rather than risk losing their show on the radio, Ira and Charlie didn't call BS on the Smiling Eddie deal. They stayed quiet. After all, they did get their songs published which would help them get some more work. While working on the radio station they did pick up shows and they still didn't pay a whole lot but the boys took all they could get. Ira already being moody enough to begin with started taking what is known as white crosses which are popular with the truckers to stay awake enough to drive and he also took up the bottle and began to drink a little bit. Now it's a little known fact that most of the musicians you hear on records don't read music. Most folks are stunned to learn that even the great Chet Atkins couldn't read music and didn't care to learn. By 1949, the boys had decided that they were going to make their own materials and take it to Nashville. From now on, it Smiling Eddie would uh, keep him out of the mix because of what he had already done. So. They would go to Fred Rose's house, his home studio, actually, to record their demos for their new songs. When Fred heard the brothers sing, he was absolutely floored. Fred immediately called up Decca Records and gets them to sign the boys to a deal. Now we're finally getting somewhere, folks. The only problem with the contract is that the brothers didn't have any control over what they could record. And that was pretty standard for contracts, and a lot of times still is. The Decca kept trying to get them to record songs that were more fitting for a single, single singer than a duo. They decided that the contract wouldn't do them a bit of good, so they just sat it out and didn't record anything. But all wasn't lost. They moved back to Knoxville to play a, on two radio shows, the Tennessee Barn Dance and the Midday Merry-Go-Round. These two shows were seen as minor league versions of the Grand Ole Opry. Usually, if an act does good on either of these shows, it leads to an appearance on the Grand Ole Opry. Oh, and uh, they were going to make $200 a week. That's worth about $2,200 in today's money. These were live shows done in front of a large audience and were broadcast across the entire country. Uh, This is exactly what they've been looking for. They were introduced and went on to perform the very first song. Everything sounded great, people appeared to be loving their sound. That was until Ira just stopped singing, took his mandolin off and smashed it right in the middle of the first song because he said that it wouldn't stay in tune. The Who didn't have anything on this guy. He was the first musician to smash his instrument on stage while performing. The boys were immediately fired from the show following Charlie Punch and Ira in the eye for blowing their chants. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. So they go back to the low-paying gigs and struggling to make it. Fred Rose tries again, and they were signed to another pitiful contract with MGM Records, which was no better than the DECA contract. By 1952, the boys are back in Memphis, working at the post office to make ends meet as they still try to play as many shows as they can get by with. But this time, they're thinking that uh, they may as well just give up. They've been trying for over 10 years, and every time they get a little break, something goes drastically wrong. While one might think that Ira cost them their best chance back in Knoxville, and that may be true, It seems like they always get to the doorstep of success, and more often than not, there's somebody else that tries to control them before messing it all up. Now, Fred Rose, knowing that the brothers were unbelievably talented and were literally breaking ground as a duo, knew that their first two contracts were horrible. He thought that they were better than that. So he goes to Capitol Records, who agrees to a contract with Ira and Charlie. This time, Fred himself will produce the sessions, and he even got Chet Atkins to set in on guitar. This time, folks, it sounds like it's on. A few weeks later, Charlie is sitting at home when he gets a check in the mail. It's for $600. That's worth about 6000 in today's money. He thinks that it's a horrible mistake and calls the record company up to try to straighten things out. They assure him that that's no mistake. He earned that money, and it's all his. In fact, Ivor should have received a check just like it. Charlie's don't know how, how to act at this time because he'd never received a dime from a record company before. That's when the boys decided that they must be good enough now to make it on the Opry. Well, the Opry was the reason they started all of this in the first place. After all, they had records that were selling, and were playing shows, and were paying better and doing doing good at it. So they started what would become a five-year conquest. They drove up to the Ryman Auditorium, where the Opry was broadcast, and began to see the manager. They uh, met a man named Jim Denny, who said he was a manager and asked how he could help them they auditioned for him and he promptly turned them down and they left but they didn't stay gone every friday or saturday night that they had open where they weren't playing a show they went to the rhyming and auditioned for jim who turned them down again and again now being that everything is starting to take off and they're just beginning to make it something must be in works to go wrong right well it does uncle sam comes calling for charlie again it seems that he only spent 14 months at war during World War II, and now they need him in Korea. So, once again, they have the rug dragged out from under them as they were knocking on the door of success. Charlie spends 10 months in the Air Force in Korea before coming back home. The boys are still under contract with Capital in 1953, and unlike all other times when disaster struck, the head of Capital Country Division named Ken Nelson takes the brothers on as his personal project. The first song they recorded for him was called Born Again. Now Charlie takes lead vocals on it and seems like a typical recording session until Ira charges in with the harmony line. He comes in high and fluctuates just like he saw the little girl do back in the Sacred Harp singing back home and the microphone nearly burns up from the harmonics vibrating through it. And I mean literally burn up. You can hear it in the recording. Ken Nelson nearly falls on the floor when he hears him saying he is completely stunned. They record more records that do pretty well, and they work a region and uh, m- gain the m- momentum that they had lost when Charlie went into the Army. And uh, Now remember, this is 1953, well before the Eisenhower Interstate System, and the boys are driving around all over the place using hand maps as navigation. It's tiring to grind out the miles and continue to play. And, of course, they picked right back up in the tradition of going to the opera and being turned down by Jim Denny every chance they got, too. If they could only get on the opera, that would lead them to being able to base everything out of Nashville, which was more suited for travelers than the places they'd been trying to go to. Ivor leads in a pretty big radio show, that was based out of Birmingham. And being tired of the grueling travel in the road and being rejected by Jim Denny once again, they decided to go on to Birmingham and do the radio show. It turns into a miserable failure. The brothers didn't know that there was a duet in the area that copied their style and was literally playing every one of their songs as fast as they could get a hold of them as soon as they put them out. The only reason that people showed up to the shows was to criticize them as being copycats of the other band that were actually copying them to start with, and they, as they were the original writers and singers of the records. After 15 years of going at it like this, Charlie, usually being the refined and calm one of the two, he, he had had it and tells Ira to stop by payphone on their way home. Charlie calls Ken Nelson and tells him that unless he can get them on the opera, the brothers are just plain, flat out going to quit. He tells Ken that they have been auditioning for Jim Denny at the Ryman for over five years, and he turns them down every week. Ken starts laughing and tells Charlie that Jim Denny is just a stage manager. He couldn't get you on the opera if he wanted to. Charlie later said that he felt like his hair was on fire and that he could have got his hands on Jim Denny right then. He'd probably killed him. Ken makes a call to the owner of the WSM Broadcast, which broadcasts the opera, and just like that, the boys are on the very next Friday night, and if the show goes well, they'll play Saturday night as well. The boys immediately head to Nashville, where they're taken around and introduced to the producers and different folk that helped put on the show. The last person they got introduced to was uh, the office of Jim Denny. Jim is on the phone, too busy to even acknowledge the presence. They wait for a few minutes, but Jim never gets off the phone. I ref- finally makes a smart-aleck comment about them getting on the opera in spite of Jim Denny, and the boys just walk on out. That night, their dream was finally realized as their favorite singer, Roy Acuff, introduces them, and they literally blow the doors off the Ryman. People absolutely love them the boys are on cloud nine as they come back to do the same thing on Saturday night. By 1955, the boys are hit. They're full-blown members of the Grand Ole Opry, recording groundbreaking sounds and playing shows with their idols in the bluegrass business. So, it's here that we ask again, what could go wrong this time? Well, it's not necessarily that things went really wrong this time. Capitol had signed them to do gospel music. They wanted to do other stuff, but Capitol already had a duo singing country hits. The duo, by the way, who had learned their harmony style from the boys, uh, and Capitol just didn't see the brothers doing that type of music. They would go into a show where folks were drinking, dancing, and having a grand old time until the boys took the stage and threw cold water all over it by playing gospel music. Don't get me wrong, the boys loved gospel music, It was their roots, but they knew that it wasn't flying very well in the shows they were booked to play. Uh, To top it all off, their music wasn't really respected by the church crowds either. After all, it wasn't played in traditional gospel instruments, and folks didn't really know how to take it. Ken Nelson agreed to let them record their own non-gospel music. They record When I Stopped Dreaming," and it's an instant hit, but the Next one, which they didn't write, called "I Don't Believe You've Met My Baby" explodes all the way to number one. The boys are making bank now. This is when they got their nudie suits. Now nudie suits became popular early in with country singers. The first one I remember seeing was Porter Wagner. When you see one like that, you remember it. These suits cost about twenty-five hundred dollars a piece back then. That's about twenty-five thousand today. Everything has finally come together for our boys, but we know where they came from and the troubles they had getting there. They had defeats snatched from the jaws of victory more times than they could count. There was only one question left to ask now again. What could go wrong this time? This time, Ivor didn't lose it again or smash his mandolin. There was no smiling Eddie that came along and ripped him off. No, it was... Something that nobody could've stopped or even anticipated. This time, folks, it was a little thing called rock and roll. Rock and roll hit the earth and changed everything about the time Ira and Charlie went to record their next album called Ira and Charlie. That didn't do nearly what the last one did. And in 1958, Ken calls the boys in for a week-long recording session where they recorded a complete gospel album as well as a non-gospel album. But somewhere during the recording of these albums, Ken tells Ira that he thinks the old-time music sound is what's holding them back and it's going to have to be out. He wants Ira to put down the mandolin and allow him to add more modern-style instruments to the song. I guess at the time it must have seemed to be the solution to everything. Everybody that played country music was dealing with the same thing. Nobody knew where this rock and roll was headed or how long it would last. There were many country music artists that were jumping the country music ship and doing the very same thing. I think that this was probably one of the biggest mistakes that could have been made with our boys. People liked their music and knew what they were getting. and to change it now turned out to be one huge mistake. Both of the albums featuring the new instruments sat right on the shelves and didn't sell. In fact, Ira and Charlie told Ken that their most requested song it shows was one of their oldest ones, the one they'd won their first radio show playing years ago. So, Knoxville Girl was released after the two albums didn't show much sales and it became a big hit for the brothers. It just proves that the boys didn't need any fancy instruments, reverb on their voices, or anything other than what they already had to start with, but it was too late to fix the problem now. By the time their next album came out, called Satan Is Real, they already recorded it with the new sound. Also by this time, Ivor was about to lose it. He had already known, been known to be moody and he drank occasionally, but now he was throwing back a fifth of whiskey and about all the beer he could chase it with every day. And he was on his third marriage, and if you thought that him smashing the mandolin and costing him the first gig was a something, you should see him now at one of their shows. I was known to lose it in the middle of their shows and smash more than a mandolin. Sometimes one or both boys would leave the show with blood trickling down their mouth or nose. Now Iver would constantly ride Charlie over any little mistake he may or well, may not even have made while playing the guitar, which would end in Charlie whipping Iver's lanky frame into submission. Ivor was taller, but uh, he couldn't fight. Even his ex-wives regularly whipped him. But just as fast as they would fight, they would be back on to normal again in a matter of minutes. It's, uh, if you've got brothers, you know how that works. That's just how us brothers are. He started turning simple recording sessions into marathon all-nighters by demanding retake after retake on song after song when there was nothing wrong with it to start with. Ira and his wife Betty went over to, or Charlie and his wife Betty went over to Ira's house for dinner one Sunday. As they pulled up, Ira and his wife were out in the front lawn with a fist fight. Charlie jumped out of the car, pulled Ira away, as his wife took a swing at Ira with a cast iron skillet. but cracked Charlie in the head instead, and I mean literally cracked the skillet over Charlie's head, something like out of a Three Stooges movie or something. After that one blew over, Ira invited a whole bunch of the Opry members over to his house for a party. The writer Roy Acuff, even came over. Charlie said that everybody was having the best time until Ira and his wife appeared to get into a little argument over God knows what this time. They took it into the bedroom as to not disturb their guests, but when they all sat around a few minutes, they heard gunshots. Then the bedroom door busts open, and four more gunshots ring out, and Ira flops out on the floor. They're standing in the bedroom. Uh, with the phone cord hanging around her bruised-up neck was Ira's wife, literally holding a smoking gun. She'd shot him because he was trying to strangle her with a phone cord. They took Ira to the hospital where he was found that uh, every one of the six bullets had missed all of his major organs and blood vessels and he was going to be okay. It would be a few months before he could hit the road to start playing again because one of the bullets went right through his arm. He wouldn't even be able to pick up his nose there for a little while. But during the off time, Charlie began to like being with his family. He also started to wonder why on earth he'd put up with so much of Ira's craziness. He did love his brother, but he realized that he'd most likely been enabling the whole thing all along. Used to be Ivor would have some drinks on the weekends and get into some mischief, but really didn't hurt anybody. In fact, it was said that Ivor was one of the nicest, most humble people in the world until he started drinking. It was 1963 when the boys started back to doing shows, and it wasn't long before Ivor started back to doing exactly what he was doing before. The final straw for Charlie came just before one of the shows when Ira started in on Charlie about where he'd laid Ira's mandolin. He just wouldn't let it go. Ira finally said the thing that did it for Charlie. This wasn't the first time that he'd said it, but it was the time Charlie made sure that it stuck. He told Charlie that he was leaving the act and that Charlie could go get a job for the gas station for all he cared because that was probably all he was qualified to do. So Charlie left and that was it. They never played together again. Charlie, now on his own, at first didn't want anything else to do with music, but as time went on, he began to think more and more about it. Finally, he booked a show at the Grand Ole Opry. It had always been thought that the true sound of the boys came from Ivor's singing, and Charlie had always just accepted that to be true, so he was nervous when he hit the rhyming stage that night. It turned out that the crowd loved him. He would go on to record an album and several hits on it. Ira, on the other hand, went back to the farm where he bought some land off his father and worked it for a while. He got married to his fourth wife, Ann, but once the music bug bites, it holds on for a long time, folks, usually the rest of your life. By 1965, Ira started booking his own shows. He went out and played as the crowds loved him as well. He called his mother from a show in Missouri and told her that he just didn't think that the, he could keep playing music. He thought that he had actually missed his calling and that it, well, his, that's why his life was stayed in such turmoil all the time. He told her that once his shows were finished, he was going to become a minister and leave it all behind. He finished that last show and he and Ann got into the back seat of their rented car and was on the way home. As irony would have it, a drunk driver hit him head on instantly, killing everybody in both vehicles except Ira and Ann unable to move from the back seat of the car they slumped there until help finally arrived they found ira and ann were both in the back seat arm in arm ira had bled to death by the time they got there and Ann barely clung to life they rushed her to the hospital where they weren't equipped to handle her injuries so they transferred her to another one and it just so happened she died as they pulled into the emergency room entrance of the second hospital Charlie was unaware that Ira was looking into the ministry. The boys had talked about possibly doing another album once they both finished what they were doing. But now that was all gone. Ira was laid to rest in Harpeth Mills Memory Garden in Nashville next to his wife Ann. Charlie would go on to have several hit records through the years. He also wrote a biography about the boys' lives called Satan is Real, the story of the Leuven brothers. The boys had changed their name from Loudermilk to Leuven to make it easier for the fans to remember and pronounce. Charlie would live on until 2011 when cancer took him home. He was laid to rest next to Ira and Ann. The harmony singing that is heard in today's music was inspired by the Leuven brothers. They pretty much invented the style over almost 100 years ago. Well, before anybody else had done it. They also perfected it to a point that I don't believe the ever be equaled by anybody else. The separation harmonics of their voices couldn't even be fully picked up by any microphone that they sung into. And it's doubtful that any of today's mics could do it a whole lot better. It was just like the Sacred Heart style singing. You really have to hear it and really hear it to, to understand it. If there hadn't been the Leuven Brothers, it wouldn't be the Everly Brothers, the Statler Brothers, or any other of that type of music. They paved a long, hard road for others to follow, and it came from the Appalachian Mountains of North Alabama. Oh, and one more thing. My favorite record to listen to on my grandfather's Vic Troller was When I Stopped Dreamin' by the Louvin Brothers. Hope you've enjoyed today's story. If you have, please rate and review the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. If you'd... Like even more episodes of both podcasts and access to the Deviant Report, which comes out as I collect enough stories to make an episode, consider becoming a subscriber for $1.99 a month for extra episodes of all three podcasts. Please join us on Facebook group Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend Podcast where we can discuss anything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian Murder, Mystery, or Legend. I'll see you then.